the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. Our psalm for today is familiar to all of us. For all of its pastoral images, it is not primarily a pastoral psalm. It's a royal psalm. The shepherd is a royal image used throughout the ancient Near East. The king is like a shepherd who protects his people, the sheep. And this is the ideal to which all kings should aspire, but kings generally make lousy shepherds. Mark Twain wrote, kings are mostly rapscallions. The Old Testament prophets knew this. Listen to these words from Samuel the prophet is warning the people of Israel about kings. This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons to be his horsemen, to plow his ground, to make his weapons of war. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields. He will take a tenth of your grain and wine. He will take your servants and your donkeys and your sheep. The king, Samuel says, will take, take, and take some more. Even David a man after God's own heart, the very best shepherd king, forgot to, how to be a shepherd when he became a king. In David's early life, he is with the flock, gathering the sheep together and protecting them from bears and lions. When David is a seasoned king, he too becomes a taker. We all know the story. I, I don't want to bifurcate uh, his life, young, innocent, virtuous David versus mature, savvy, opportunistic David. But it seems the kinglier he became, the more unshepherdly he got. So we've got Ezekiel 34. It's a four-part oracle about the establishment of a just king. Parts 1 and 3 describe evil shepherds. And parts 2 and 4... We didn't read those today. Portrays the Davidic shepherd as a king who rules for God. And this is one of the most tender portraits of God in the book of Ezekiel. What David isn't, this shepherd king will be. And the thrust of Ezekiel 34 is to affirm that God's covenant with David has not been revoked. It hasn't been pulled away. And we can rejoice and find hope in the David story because, because it was assimilated into and redeemed by the Jesus story. There is, of course, only one true shepherd king who is both shepherd and king who gathers the sheep together, guards them in a fertile pasture, and heals their wounds. Our gospel tells us that Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep rather than saving his own life as a hired hand does. The good shepherd does this, not because he owns the sheep, which he does, but because he knows them. I know my own, and my own know me. And this also describes Israel's covenant relationship with God as knowing him, which means having an intimate and obedient relationship with him. Because Jesus is the good shepherd and knows his sheep, he wants nothing from them except to know them and be known by them. He takes nothing from them and demands nothing of them. To know someone is to love them. 
What we long for is to be known and to be loved. There is a direct correlation between knowing and loving, and it is absolutely life-giving when the person who knows you the best loves you the most. And when you are known and you are still loved, perhaps loved even more for your shortcomings, you will want to become worthy of that love rather than persisting in your shortcomings. You will want to change. You'll want to grow into that knowing love. And of course, giving of yourself to another flows naturally when you know them and you love them. To know them, to love them, is to give of yourself to them. The good shepherd who knows his sheep gives his life for them. He lays it down, but he doesn't thereby lose his life. John 10, 18, we didn't read that this morning. Mary didn't read that in the gospel, but John 10, 18 says, Jesus takes it back up. Jesus finds his life again. Whoever loses his life will find it, Matthew 10, 39. Giving your life for the sheep doesn't make you a good shepherd. It makes you a dead shepherd. You're only going to protect the sheep if you live. The only power that can turn death into life is love. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. Love is both the motivation and the reward. Jesus lays down his life because the Father loves him, and his Father loves Jesus because he lays down his life. Such is the power of love. My mom passed away recently, and I just stopped loving her when she died. Of, of, of course not. When a loved one dies, you don't stop loving them. Sometimes you love them even more. Love is a life force that, that not even death can stop. Je Jesus loved his own to the end. And that end, that's in John 13, before the foot washing. At the beginning of that chapter, it says that Jesus is going to love his disciples in the foot washing as a representation of how he loves them as a servant to the core, to the end. And the end is not a literal dead end. It's not loving to termination but to completion, a culmination. It is finished. Can you imagine getting in a one-upmanship shouting match with God, I love you, oh, I love you more. God always has the last word, I love you most. I love you to the uttermost. I love you to the end. And the end is always the beginning. Jesus lays down his life in order that he might take it again. Craig Keener writes, on this reading, the resurrection is not a circumstance that follows the death of Jesus, but is the essential completion of Jesus' death. And this is what we call redeeming love, which redeems all of our tragic love. Maybe you've said to someone, I love you to death, which we all tend to do in one way or another. Jesus loves us to life. I have been meditating on the Pascha Nostrum in morning prayer. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And I believe this is what John means in his epistle when he says that anyone who abides in God 
does not sin because God's seed abides in him. And the seed only brings life when it is taken and buried in the ground and is thus reborn into new life, nourished by God's love. The slow creep of sin and death in our lives is being reversed as God brings life to us, as he nourishes us in his life and his love, as he nourishes us in his knowing of us. And this, of course, is accomplished through the king who gives his life as a good shepherd and takes it back again. Love is not only as strong as death, it turns death into life. So what does that mean for us? Well, this love transforms community, our life together. When that life is in us, we love one another as Jesus loves us. It's interesting, if you look at 1 John, 3, 6, uh, 1 John 3.16 that we read uh, this morning, that Brad read for us, it sounds very much like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And what should we do? We then ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The optional passage for today's reading, I didn't choose it today, I chose Ezekiel 34 instead, but the optional passage is Acts 4. And it says this, The believers were of one heart, one soul, and no one said that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had everything in common. The possessors of land and houses sold them and brought the proceeds and laid them at the disciples' feet, and distribution was made to each as any had need. And something startled me when I was reading that passage as I compared it to the gospel. The verb used for the believers laying down their possessions is the same verb used to Jesus to describe Jesus laying down his life. Laying down your possessions. That doesn't mean that I cannot have anything. It does mean that whatever I have isn't mine. It's ours. My house is your house and yours is mine. Of course, there is a matter about having to pay the mortgage, but, but you know what I mean. We open our homes to one another. We open our hearts to one another. We open our hearts. More than that, my life is not my own. It belongs to you. This is the sacrifice inherent to community. I'm not simply fond of the souls. I'm not simply attached to the souls. I am yours. Three years ago, Tammy uh, told me she wanted to buy a new dining room table. A big one, she said. Ah, and expensive, I thought. I mean, I liked our table, which I had bought from Pier 1. It had an Asian look to it. It was of a smallish, comfortable size. And when I objected, Tammy said, the table's not for us. I said, well, well then what's, what's it for? I asked, and I walked right into her irrefutable answer. Well, it's for a home group, which by then had grown to 12 people. My ideal group is four people. The table, Tammy said, is for all of us. I think this is what Jesus means when he says we are all one flock with one shepherd. This applies to the church universal, one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and to the parish church, the head of the Anglican church, of all souls, is not a bishop, 
a priest, the clergy, the vestry, We're all a kingdom of priests, and Jesus is our great high priest, and he is also the good shepherd whose flock is this community. We belong to each other because we belong to Jesus. As Jesus does for us, we do for each other. Amen.